Let's turn in our Bibles this evening to Nehemiah chapter 12 as we continue our journey through the book of Nehemiah, Lord willing, potentially, as we go through tonight's study, we can possibly finish up the book of Nehemiah, chapters 12 and 13. As we come to Nehemiah chapter 12, we now come actually to the dedication ceremony of this wall that was rebuilt and restored under the leadership of Nehemiah, who answered God's calling to travel to Jerusalem to rally the people, uh, to follow what God desired, which was to see this wall rebuilt and reestablished as it was in a dilapidated condition and the people were in distress and great difficulty and the people rallied together. They overcame great opposition. They continued to be determined and and continued to seek the Lord and and work together in cooperation. They overcame the challenges, rebuilt this wall. There was somewhat of a spiritual revival and a renewal that seemed to take place, people recommitting their hearts afresh to the Lord. And now in chapter 12, we come to sort of the, as we'll see, dedication of the wall itself. As we come to Nehemiah chapter 12, you'll notice again we get a little bit more of some of these lists by way of records. It tells us, verse 1, that these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, so reaching back all the way to some of the first remnant who came back uh, from the Babylonian captivity, which we saw all the way back in our study in the book of Ezra. Uh, and the names are listed there of those individuals uh, who were the heads, uh, says verse 7, of the priests and their brethren in the days of Yeshua. Chapter 12, verse 8 tells us, moreover, the Levites were, and then again it gives a list of the names of the Levites for documentation purposes, Jeshua and Benui and Cadmiel and Sherebiah and Judah and Mattaniah, who led the thanksgiving psalms, he and his brethren. So interesting, notice that some of the psalms, we have a whole book full of psalms in the Old Testament, and particularly some of them were designated to express gratitude specifically. That was the heart behind the Holy Spirit's inspiration of the writing out of those songs and poetic psalms, as we refer to them as, to express gratitude to God. Also, Babukhiah and Uni, their brethren, it says, verse 9, stood across from them in their duties, accomplishing the specific roles and responsibilities that they had by God's appointment. We then get, again, more names listed. If you want to read down through those names, which continue to carry all the way down through verse 21. And then chapter uh, 12, verse 22, picks up now with a little bit more of paragraph form, telling us it was during the reign of Darius the Persian. A record was also kept of the Levites and the priests who had been heads of their father's houses in the days of Eliashib. Jehoiada, Johanan, and Jedua, and the sons of Levi, the heads of their father's houses, until the days of Johanan, the son of Eliashib, were written in the book of the Chronicles. Uh, Again, we've made mention of this many times, but just very interesting to see as the Bible is, no doubt we understand, a spirit-inspired book. Again, it was breathed out by the Spirit of the living God himself, that God, by his Spirit, directed the authors, those who wrote down and recorded what the Holy Spirit was inspiring and directing them to write. And and yet such uh, 
thought to detail. We take notice again as we look at these lists and the genealogies and the records and the things written down. Certainly this was critical for the Jewish people as they kept track of things and paid attention to names and genealogies. And these were very important to them culturally as well as religiously. But more than that, they remind us of just that God is a God of details. Uh, God is thorough. Uh, he's not sloppy in the things that he does. He's very detail-oriented. He does things well. He's, he's organized in his approach to things in a decent and orderly manner. He knows the names of each and every person. He's aware of what's going on in their lives and just this great, awesome God, but yet he's a God of the person, of the individual. As he lists these names, they mean nothing maybe to us, but to God, there's someone who is a soul that had value and purpose during their time on earth. And good to remember that, as sometimes you may feel like you kind of live a life in obscurity. God knows who you are. God knows what you're doing. He's pleased with you. He's aware of what's going on in your life and, and, and appreciates the things that you do for him specifically. And just a great encouragement to always remember those things. Verse 24 tells us, And the heads of the Levites, these were the leaders, again were Hashbaiah and Sherebiah and Jeshua the son of Cadmiel with their brothers across from them. Notice to praise and give thanks, group alternating with group, according to the command of David, the man of God. Remember, David was, during the time of his reign as the king, the one who instituted a lot of these specific roles and duties of the particular Levites and ministers who were anointed by the Spirit to lead the singing and the worship of God through music and praise and song and thanksgiving in a specific way. And, and here is a reference to how they were once again implementing those things, those who were praising and giving thanks, group alternating with groups. So they kind of had rotating musical groups, rotating musicians, if you would, uh, each taking their turn and participation to lead the worship according to how David commanded them to do it. Verse 25 then mentions to us some of the names, again, of the gatekeepers that were keeping watch of the storerooms of the gates. And again, we've talked about how these gatekeepers were kind of like ushers slash security guards in their function. They maintained the order of God's house, of the temple precincts. They made sure to watch over the people as they came in and they went out. They maintained a peaceful environment, made sure they kept away that which would threaten or harm God's people, or that would even in some way seek to hinder the ministry of God's Spirit and the worship that was intended to be taking place. So they were kind of gatekeepers in that sense. They functioned to kind of preside over what was happening and had a heart to make sure they protected and preserved God's people and that the environment of worship was uninterrupted. And certainly thankful for people that still do that in this day. I think that's a valuable and important ministry. Verse 26, it says, And they lived in the days of Jehoiakim, son of Jehura, son of Josadak, and in the days of Nehemiah, there's our leader who we've been reading about throughout this book, who was the governor. So that was the role Nehemiah held. Ultimately, he was the governor of that territory, took a civil position of leadership. And Ezra, the priest, the scribe, who was the spiritual leader predominantly, and we saw a great deal about him and his ministry in the book of Ezra prior to this, as well as we saw some things Ezra was doing in his ministry and teaching of the Word of God back in Nehemiah chapter 8, where there was a great expression of the people demonstrating their love and excitement to want to hear the Word of God and be taught in the ways of the Lord, and Ezra led that process as the spiritual leader. 
Verse 27, as we mentioned at the beginning, look at it there. It says, now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. So we now come to the dedication ceremony, the dedication of this wall of Jerusalem. They had spent a great deal of time and effort of love building this wall of Jerusalem. They had pushed through obstacles, challenges, opposition they faced from the enemy. They persevered. They worked together. And at the end of this project, they knew that it was a project that God had accomplished through their willing efforts and making themselves to be useful to the Lord. And and now they want to just dedicate this with celebration. Kind of reminds us of how in today's day and age, a lot of times churches will maybe have a building dedication ceremony. When they move into a new facility, maybe they renovate it, or maybe they completely construct and build a church building. And once it's all completed after that process, and it's usually a kind of a, a strenuous process to do stuff like that, it takes a lot of sweat equity and and tears and effort and labor, and a lot of times God's people contribute that uh, in the process of of maybe construction and setting up houses of worship for ourselves. Uh, And at the end of it, it's just kind of nice to just dedicate the whole thing to the Lord. Lord, this was your plan. We participated, but but it just belongs to you, and we want to thank you and honor you. And and it's kind of just a way of acknowledging that we're dedicating this facility and its usefulness to to you, God. It's yours. It just houses your work. Let it be a functional thing that you can use to do things for your kingdom, to help people spiritually, to let people gather. And as we do that with the building, we kind of see them here now doing this with the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, which they had constructed. So they sought out the Levites, it says, in all their places, verse 27, to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate, notice, to celebrate the dedication with gladness both with thanksgiving and singing, with cymbals and stringed instruments and harps. So you notice that this dedication ceremony was characterized by worship, song, music, prayer, thanksgiving. It says there was a spirit of gladness. It just was a a celebratory time, and people are giving thanks. They're singing to express their excitement and gratitude towards the Lord using instruments of strings and cymbals, percussion, and just this glorious, glorious celebration going on at the dedication. And verse 28 says, And the sons of the singers, and we'll notice this, the singers, so clearly God by his Holy Spirit has designated some people to be singers by anointing and by calling. It certainly isn't all of us. We should all sing. We should all give praise to the Lord, but there are some who we need who have pitch and the ability to understand melody and harmony and all these things, that, that they're the singers. And we want the singers lead to the singing. And we'll see this reference a number of times, the singers. So the sons of the singers, it says, gathered together from the countryside around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Nephilites, from the house of Gilgal and the fields of Giva and Asmaveth, for the singers had built themselves villages all around Jerusalem. So the singers seems like like to spend time together, maybe so they could practice their harmonies and kind of enjoyed uh, worshiping spontaneously together. So uh, the singers had built themselves, it says, villages all around the surrounding area outside of Jerusalem, so they had ease of access to get there. Then the priests and the Levites purified themselves and purified the people, the gates, and the wall. So a part of this dedication ceremony was readying themselves 
purifying themselves, that they might be ready to fully engage God with nothing hindering them. Again, we think of how this is important for our lives at times. Remember, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And having a a pure heart and the, the purity of our life allows us to, in an unhindered way, just experience God to the fullest degree. So as they're dedicating themselves, there's a purification process. Verse 31, so I brought the leaders of Judah up on the wall and appointed two large thanksgiving choirs. So now we got some big Thanksgiving choirs going on here. And and take notice before we read down through this, this the beginning of verse 31, Nehemiah says, I brought the leaders of Judah up on the wall that is on top of the wall and appointed two large Thanksgiving choirs. Now, if I can recollect your memory all the way back to about chapter two, if you remember when they began this desire to begin building the wall, some of the accusations and criticisms that were coming from their enemies, remember Sanballat and Tobiah, they were mocking them saying, do you really think that anything for God is going to actually happen, that you're going to be successful? And even if you build a wall, even if a little tiny fox runs up on it, the whole wall will crumble. In other words, they were trying to mock and say, whatever you do for God, it's not going to last. It's not going to be substantial. Even a little fox will run up on the thing and there all your efforts are just going to fall apart. Well, look at this. Now they have built that wall, and not just can it sustain a fox, but literally it says there are a massive set of two choirs walking around up on the wall. Uh, again, when God builds things, he builds them right, and they're uh, done in a way where God, by his power, does exceedingly abundantly, above and beyond, often what we can ask or think. Uh, And the work of the Lord is strong, and it stands when it's a genuine work of the Lord. And this wall represents that. Again, it was able to sustain two large Thanksgiving choirs. Uh, The mockery of the enemy is silenced, and put the shame here is the fruitfulness of God's work is manifesting itself as the two big choirs are actually up walking around the wall, it says. And look what they did, verse 31, let's read through this. It says, one choir went to the right hand on the wall toward the refuse gate, and after them went Hoshabiah and half of the leaders of Judah and Azariah and those other guys named there. And verse 35 says, some of the priests of the sons and with trumpets. Verse 36, and then his brethren, Shemaiah and Azariah, and continue the listening of the name. The end of verse 36 tells us, and Ezra the scribe went before them. So one Thanksgiving choir begins to move in one direction, it says, toward the refuse gate, and they are being led by Ezra, fittingly enough, the spiritual leader and scribe and priest. And it tells us that they began to move, uh, heading towards the water gate eastward in verse 37, and then verse 38, and the other Thanksgiving choir, the second choir that was up on the wall, they went the opposite way. So they both go the opposite way on the wall. They're going to come around and meet up ultimately. And Nehemiah says, and I was behind them with half of the people on the wall, going past the tower of the ovens as far as the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim and above the old gate. So these are the different areas they're passing by. As far, it says, the end of verse 39 is the sheep gate, and they stopped at the gate of the prison. Verse 40, so the two Thanksgiving choirs stood in the house of God. Likewise, I and half of the rulers with me, and the priests, again, mentioned by name there. So 
it seems they come all the way around. They ultimately connect and intersect, and then they actually come down from the wall, and now these two Thanksgiving choirs go up into the actual house of God itself, position themselves in a place where they now can continue to lift praise and worship unto the Lord as they sing and express their thanksgiving to God there in the temple. Verse 42 tells us, after listing the names, the singers sang loudly with Jeraziah, the director, or Jezariah, the director. I love that. I have it underlined. The singers sang loudly. The idea is enthusiastically, passionately. They sang in a way where they were not allowing human inhibition to hold them back. They weren't mumbling under their breasts or singing reluctantly because they were so concerned, oh, what if our pitch cracks or our tone doesn't sound absolutely perfect? Again, they weren't performing. It wasn't a recording studio. The church isn't a recording studio. The church should never be a place. And I'm, again, I, I'm an advocate for people who are anointed and gifted to sing should be who are leading in that ministry uh, to lead us in song and music. I, I, I don't discount that at all. But by the same token, uh, we never want to be so overly focused on music and singing and so forth to the degree like we're, we're trying to perfect in a recording studio some quality of sound or singing that is pitch perfect in a way. Uh, again, we're not creating something for people to listen to. We're having people who are gifted and anointed by the Lord who are very talented with that skill to be used by God under the power of the Holy Spirit to lead us. And to lead us in a way whereby we can engage and we want to participate and we want to follow them. And a lot of times it's much easier to follow someone, not necessarily when they are singing and hitting notes and pitches that are so incredible and above and beyond our own ability where we kind of just stop because we can't keep up and watch them or listen to them, but that they just sing passionately, loudly, enthusiastically. In some ways, just, again, no reservation. They're just expressing their worship to God and all of the people, it says, begin to engage. So the singers, they sang loudly. Again, the Bible tells us, anyway, the old King James says, make a joyful noise to the Lord. So again, we don't have to sing perfectly. Uh, God is more than able to appreciate still uh, our, our singing in worship. He commands us to do it. He wants us to do it. It pleases him. And he is serenaded by the condition of our heart that it's coming from. And I think God likes nice, loud singing. I love when there's loud singing with a group of people, whether you're with five, ten people in a small group, or whether you're in the sanctuary, just that reverberation of many voices singing. Boy, it is one of the things right now during this pandemic and with us being hindered from being together with one another that I really, really miss. Just being able to hear that resonation of many voices lifting up their praise and song to the Lord. There's something very, very powerful about that. I think it's God's heart and design, and I love to see it happening here. The singer sang loudly as Jezariah was directing the singing. Verse 43, also that day they offered great sacrifices again and rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy so that the women and children also rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. Again, just, just indicating something supernatural was happening. This was of God. It was powerful. God was moving on the hearts of the people. They, it says God made them rejoice with great joy. Again, what was happening? Singing. 
There is something powerful, something supernatural, anointed by the Spirit when just singing and lifting of the voice through song and music begins to happen among God's people, that there is just a supernatural rejoicing and an excitement and the people just giving themselves over and great joy begins to happen. Notice it was men, women, children, families just lifting up their hearts to the Lord and great joy was being heard afar off. It was just impacting in a far-reaching way. And at that same time, it says, verse 44, some were appointed over the rooms of the storehouses for the offerings, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather them in from the fields of the cities and the portion specified by the law of the priests and the Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. So we see here as well, the again, the appointment of those who took responsibility to make sure that the offerings, the first fruits, the tithes, that is the money, the gifts, the offerings that were given unto God's house to sustain the work of God as they were kept, received, and maintained, that there were those with using stewardship that monitored those things, and the people rejoiced for the spiritual leaders, it says, as well, who are ministering. And again, just a beautiful thing. I, I think that's a, uh, an indication of something healthy there, that the people rejoice and just kind of celebrate over those who are ministering. Just It kind of brings everyone a sense of, of gladness. If good ministry is happening, people rejoice over how the ministry is unfolding. And verse 45 says, Both the singers and the gatekeepers kept the charge of their God and the charge of the purification according to the command of David and Solomon his son. So taking the statutes given by David and Solomon, they were keeping the charge, making sure they were upholding their duties according to the scriptural commands of such things. For in the days of David, verse 46, and Asaph of old, there were chiefs of the singers and songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And in the days of Zerubbabel, verse 47, the days of Nehemiah, all Israel gave portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, a portion for each day. And they also consecrated holy things for the Levites, and the Levites consecrated them for the children of Aaron. So we take notice, so valuable to the people of God was the worship system that continued to keep praise and worship lifted to God, that continued to help the people to stay strong spiritually and focused on God and continued the ministry of the Lord, whether it was the singers, the gatekeepers, the Levites. Again, we notice, as we saw in our last study together, it says the people gave portions to sustain these people to do this work. So again, it is a biblical thing to provide provision to those who serve in the Lord's work and at times when it's necessary for them to be fully engaged that they actually need to a degree to be employed uh, and sustained to be able to function in that role and give their full attention to it. And here we see that some of those even who were gatekeepers and singers and also the Levites were being provided by the supply of the people to continue to function in those ministries. Chapter 13 then goes on to tell us on that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God, because they had not met the children of Israel with their bread and with bread and water, excuse me, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. Great statement. So it was, when they had heard the law, they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. 
So again, we see another occasion where the power of God's word was bringing change in the lives of God's people. It says there in verse 1 that as they read from the book of Moses, that is, again, the first five books that we have of record in our Bible from Genesis to Deuteronomy, as they read and they heard those scriptures, it says they made a discovery. And, and again, this is how it should be. We read the word of God and we find out things that God wants us to know. We find out things maybe that we forgot that God has given us instruction about. We find out things that maybe we need to change in our lives. We find out where we're in sin. We find out how to live pleasing to the Lord. And here it says they found written. But you got to read the word of God. You got to be you know, reading it yourself when you're coming together with God's people. You got to take time to hear it read and taught so that God can reveal the things to us that he needs to reveal to us. And as they were reading the word of God collectively, they found written that no Ammonite or Moabite was supposed to be in the assembly of God because of what they had done in time past when the children of Israel were traveling through the wilderness. They were cruel in their treatment of them and would not provide bread or water to help them in the time of great difficulty. And so God because of that, as well as the fact that they had hired Balaam at another occasion, remember the Moabites did this, they had hired that kind of enigma of a prophet, that bizarre prophet Balaam against them, it says, to curse them. We saw that back in the book of Numbers, where they hired Balaam to pronounce a curse upon the children of Israel. But remember, when he sought to curse the children of Israel, God turned the curse in his mouth into a blessing. And instead, he blessed the people of God. God protected his people from the curse and actually transitioned it and poured out a blessing on them instead. So because of this, Deuteronomy 23, God had instructed in his word that they were not to allow these people to commingle with them because they had shown themselves to be cruel and hard-hearted, to be enemies of the people of God that sought their destruction and didn't want to participate in the worship of God nor help God's people, but were just looking to drag them down or to hinder them in their lives or their spiritual relationship with God. So because of this, God, Deuteronomy 23, said, look, do, do not allow them into your assembly. Don't let them come in because their hearts are not sincere. They, they just want to do nothing but like a wolf come in and cause problems. And God wanted to protect his people. And it says that so it was when they heard those things, they separated all the mixed multitude. That is, they, they recognized, hey, we found something written here in the word of God that we are not obeying properly. We've allowed this to be taking place, and this is not consistent with Scripture, and they found where they were, in a sense, in wrongdoing. And so they sought to adjust their lives according to the written Scripture, and this is exactly what God wants us to do. As we read the Word of God, He reveals things to us. As I said, His Holy Spirit shows us things, and we find things in the Word of God that God kind of puts His finger on and says, this is something that you need to obey in this area, or you need to correct or you need to repent of this. You need to change of this. This is not consistent with my will for your life. And, and then we need to respond to what we find written, even as we see them here. So again, it's the reading of the word. It's the revelation that comes from God's word. And then there's that response to the revelation that God has given to us in his word. And they did all three here. I love that statement, however, there, verse 2, before we move on. Remember when Balaam tried to curse them? Just the way the Holy Spirit puts this for us here in verse 2. It says that Balaam sought to put a curse against them. However, God turned the curse 
into a blessing? You know, aren't you thankful God changes not and that God is able to do stuff like that? That what the enemy intends for evil, the Bible says God can turn for the good. When people try and harm us, when something tries to curse or destroy our life, God can literally take something that's an absolute curse, if you would, and he can turn it into a blessing in our life somehow. Only God can do that. But he has this amazing supernatural ability to take even the worst of things, maybe that people have done to us, or the worst of things that could be kind of coming against us, or maybe even a mess that we created, and we just kind of radically ruined or cursed something because of our own, maybe. And God can take the curse in our lives, or the curse against us, and somehow, by his love and power and wisdom, he can turn a curse into a blessing. You always be encouraged by that. Know that God loves you as much and has not changed and can turn a curse somehow into a blessing in your life as well. well. Verse 4 tells us, Now before this, Eliashib the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God. Now watch this. Eliashib is a spiritual leader with control, authority. He has responsibility, it says, over the storerooms. The storeroom is where they would keep supplies for the operations of the temple, the wood, the first fruits, the things that were brought in as gifts and offerings to the Lord. They would keep these things in storerooms there for the priests and the Levites to do their work of ministry. So Eliashib had authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, but it says he became allied with Tobiah. You remember Tobiah? Tobiah was one of the chief enemies of God's people. From the very beginning of the book of Nehemiah, he has sought to do nothing but harm to God's people, to corrupt God's work, to hinder them, to hold them back, to cause problems. And now this spiritual leader has become allied with a worldly enemy for some reason. We're going to see ultimately it's because of a mixed marriage, because they had family members who had intermarried, and because of this, they had formed a relationship and an alliance that was not healthy spiritually. And it ultimately causes great compromise spiritually. And, and again, I think just a very fitting reminder. This is some of the reason why God says not to get into unequally yoked spiritual marriages. Because here, it's not just the marriage itself, it's actually other family members. We're going to see it's the grandchildren of some of these people. It's actually causing them to slip up themselves, to make compromises and make mistakes because of their connections that they never would have had, and influences that never would have existed if they did not join themselves together in these unhealthy marriage relationships that were not yoked properly with the same worship of God from both parties. So he now forms this alliance with Tobiah, and watch what happens, verse 5. It says, and he had prepared for him a large room where previously, previously in the house of God, they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine and oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and singers and gatekeepers and the offerings for the priests. So in essence, what Eliashib does is for some reason he moves all the provisions that were to be used it says 
to substantiate the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the offerings for the priests, all the different supplies needed to conduct God's ministry, to keep the temple worship happening. He clears all of that out and gets rid of all that. And it says he allows one of those large rooms to basically be used like an apartment to be able to house Tobiah. He basically takes Tobiah into the temple as a tenant. He allows an enemy of God's people to literally move inside of and lodge right within the house of God to set up himself as a tenant and to live there in one of these rooms. Amazing. Verse 6, But during all this, Nehemiah tells us, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 42nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Then after certain days, I obtained leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and discovered, it says, the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of our God. So Nehemiah, it seems at some point, we don't have all the information here, after he helped rebuild the wall and so forth and had the dedication that he, as was asked of him, remember in the earlier chapter, in chapter one and chapter two, he returned back to his position to the king for a time being, uh, took care of some business there in his role, and went back from Jerusalem to the territory there where he had come from under the ruler, excuse me, rulership of the king, Artaxerxes. And then after certain days, he again was able to take leave from his post. He now travels back to Jerusalem to check in on things, to see how things are going after a time of his ministry and help there. He's been away for a little while. He now comes back for a visit and he discovers what has happened in his absence. You know, the old saying, when the uh, cat's away, the mouse will play type of thing. And, and here their spiritual leader and, and strong person of influence has not been around for a short season. And they just get completely out of control morally and spiritually. And Nehemiah comes back and he says he finds this evil that Eliashib uh, had done by letting Tobiah be in a room in the courts of the house of God. He says, verse 8, And it grieved me bitterly, therefore I threw all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. <laughs> and then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms, and I brought back them into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. So notice what Nehemiah does. This is where this man shows himself to be a strong spiritual leader. Many great things we've noticed about his leadership and just being specifically a strong spiritual leader, uh, that he was a man of prayer, he's a man of determination, he's a man of wisdom, uh, That again, many different attributes. But here again, we see that he's a man of, if I guess we could use the word of spiritual backbone in this chapter, a man of inner fortitude that he has strength, and that he loves and honors God way more than he fears people. And he's willing to take a strong stand for God and the things of God and righteousness rather than ultimately be concerned about stepping on people's toes or being politically correct. And he just because he values what honors God. He's a man who loves the Lord and, and fears God. And, you know, this is an important part of spiritual leadership. Sometimes, not that we ever, you know, need to abuse our authority, but sometimes you, you got to have a little spiritual backbone. And Nehemiah here shows this. He sees this compromise in God's house, this sin that was going on. And, and he says here, it grieved me bitterly, grieved me bitterly, now, what grieved him? That basically they had compromised in such a way where they had given place to the enemy to set up camp right within God's house. 
Now, this is very sad, but again, the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 4 uh, that we're not to give place to the devil. The idea is we're never to let the devil come in and set up a base of operations within God's house somehow. We should never allow that to happen, however it may try and manifest itself. We should never allow the devil to come in and set up a base of operations in our own lives. We are now the temple of God, the Bible says. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6 say the church is God's temple now, the place where his presence is manifest and at work. The individual believer is the temple of God where his spirit dwells and works among us. And we should never let the devil come in in compromise and set up camp among us, and give place and opportunity to the devil. The Bible also tells us in Romans 13 to make no provision for the flesh. Again, same idea for our sinful nature. And this is what they had done. They had made a provision, actually permitting a, a, an apartment right there for the enemy. They had made a total provision for the sinful nature of Tobiah to just fully manifest himself operating among them. And we're not to make provisions for our flesh. This is, this is destructive stuff. This is stuff that greatly displeases and dishonors God. And that's why verse 8 says, when Nehemiah found this, again, Nehemiah is a, a type of the Holy Spirit we talked about. And when Nehemiah saw this under the Holy Spirit, he says he was grieved bitterly. And the Bible tells us in Ephesians 4 that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. That when we let Satan have access to set up camp, or we let sin and the flesh have access to have opportunity to be at work in our life and we make a provision and a doorway for it to set up a base of operations. This grieves the Holy Spirit. And what does Nehemiah do? Look at the strength, verse 8. It says, he threw out all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. I would love to see the, the movie of this. He just goes in, he just starts taking his luggage and his furniture and he just just doesn't ask him, doesn't say, hey, you have till uh, tomorrow at noon to have all your stuff removed. Or He just goes in and he just starts evicting him. He just goes in and starts throwing out all of his household goods all over the place. Just, you do not belong and you need to get out of here. And he just radically begins a removal process. And, you know, sometimes when the Holy Spirit convicts and is grieved by wrongdoing, that this, this is kind of the stuff that needs to happen. There needs to be a radical removal process where we get radical and say, look, this has got to go. No time frame, no tolerance. It is wrong. It has got to get out of my life. It has got to get out of the church. And just radical. I mean, he just radically just begins throwing everything out. And so there's that removal process. And then also notice there's the restoration process that should happen as well. Because he says he commanded them to cleanse those rooms. And of course, we're cleansed by the blood of Christ and forgiveness, and then brought back into those rooms the articles of the house of God, which were supposed to be there. So he restored back what needed to be there. This junk needs to get out, and we need to restore back the things of God that are supposed to be there. And sometimes that needs to happen in the church. We need to remove certain things and restore back what has been lost or replaced by wrong things. And sometimes in our lives, we need to remove what's not right and what's ungodly and restore back worship, restore back the things of God and his spirit where they have their rightful place. He says, verse 10, I also realize that the portions for the Levites, that is the member spiritual ministers, the portions that were designated for them by God had not been given to them for each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. So I contended with the rulers and said, why is the house of God forsaken 
And I gathered them together and set them in their place. And then all Judah brought the tithe and the grain and the new wine and the oil to the storehouse. So Nehemiah, as he probed further, he found out that the people had been guilty of neglecting to do their responsibility spiritually and due diligence as they had even promised to. They had dedicated themselves to do. Remember back in chapter 10 where they said, look, we are going to bring the tithe and the provisions to the storehouse, to God's house. Uh, We're going to exact of ourselves this amount that we bring to the house of God to sustain the house of the Lord so that God's house is not neglected. And look, in a very short period of time now, that's exactly what's happening. They had not kept their promises. They were faithful for a short season, but then they began to neglect and to regress. And it says that all of those who were Levites and the singers, the ministers who were being supported to do the work in God's house, it says, verse 10 here, that they had gone back to their fields. That is, they had to go back to their regular work, if you would, out in the the fields of the world because they weren't able to be substantiated sufficiently to give themselves properly to the work of the Lord as they should have been in the function of the temple at that time. So Nehemiah contends or rebukes the rulers, and he says, what is this, verse 11, why is the house of God forsaken? Why have you done this, he says? Why have you neglected God's house, especially when they had promised that they were going to do it, and now they had not followed through with their promise? So he rebukes them for their wrongdoing, for neglecting to be faithful in their commitments and in their support of God's work. And it says the people, again, responsibly, they repented. They then brought in the tithe and the grain and the new wine and that into the storehouse. And he says, verse 13, I appointed as treasurers over the storehouse, Shelemiah and Zadok the scribe and the Levites and Pediah. Next to them were some others listed there as well. Verse 13 says, for they were considered faithful. And their task was to distribute to their brethren. So again, just another reference to stewardship. Nehemiah says, look, this is an important area of God's ministry. And and so he appoints now faithful men, those who are dependable, those who are reliable and trustworthy. And he says, they were considered faithful, so I entrusted them to make sure they monitored the gifts and the the tithes and the first fruits that were bring, brought in and to make sure they were properly being distributed to those who were doing the work of God. He then prays, verse 14, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I've done for the house of my God and for its servants. So he says, Lord, I know I may have kind of upset some people in the strong stance I've just took in regards to these things, but he says, Remember me, God. I'm doing this for your sake and for the sake of your people and for those who are doing the ministry in the house of God. Again, keep in mind, Nehemiah is not doing this to be self-serving. He was the governor over the people. He was doing this on behalf of those who are the actual ministers spiritually. Uh, He wasn't, again, kind of in a self-serving way, say, hey, do this because I'm a minister. He was someone who was a, a governor who just loved the Lord and said, look, this is wrong. We need to be taking care of God's house and taking care of God's people. And so he prays, Lord, remember me in this effort I've made to to do what is good for the house of my God. And in those days, verse 15, he says, I saw also in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath. 
and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine and grapes and figs and all kinds of burdens which they had brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So again, now they're violating the Sabbath command where they were supposed to rest and focused upon God and they had promised they would do this as well. Remember back in that covenant in chapter 10. So Nehemiah is seeing the violation of this, trying to be greedy and get ahead with more money rather than putting the worship of God first and their spiritual lives as the top priority. So he says, verse 15, I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. I warned them, what what are you doing? Verse 16, men of Tyre there also who brought in fish and all kinds of goods, and they sold them there on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. And he says, verse 17, then I contended. That is a strong word. The idea is to take a strong stance to to fight against. He contended with them, with the nobles of Judah, and said, what evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath Day Did not your fathers do thus, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So Nehemiah says, don't you remember history? This is what got us into the problematic situation that we found ourselves in all these prior decades. Ignoring the Sabbath, they did it for 400 and 90 years, and that's why they spent 70 years in captivity. They ignored the Sabbath year of rest in their greed and their desire to get ahead financially, and they were putting money before God and so forth and just disregarding God's command, not putting top priority on their spiritual life before their material comforts and provisions. And they weren't trusting God to provide. Instead, they were striving to just obtain and acquire more for themselves. And he says, don't you remember, this was the very sin of working and selling and doing business on the Sabbath that got us into all these problems and made us suffer so much? So he's taking a strong stand, contending with the people. So it was, it says, at the gates of Jerusalem, verse 19, as it began to be dark before the Sabbath. So this is now the as the sun setting, which was when the, the Sabbath began, as the sun set from one sunset to the others when the Sabbath began, that he commanded the gates to be shut and he charged that they not be open till after the Sabbath. Again, you see the strong leader. He is just taking control. Again, just taking strong leadership and directing the people, because this is what leaders need to do sometimes, to lead strongly, to to, to just begin to give direction, to take a stand, to begin to just guide people, get them back on track. And he says, and I posted some of my servants, verse 19, at the gates, so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. Now he says, verse 20, the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. That is, Nehemiah says, they they tried this once or twice. They tried to push. They tried to push past my leadership, to push past what I was doing to try and honor God rather than pleasing men and further padding their pockets. Because again, this is what these merchants were caring about. All they cared about was profit, money, profit, money, profit profit, success, and they didn't care. They were sabotaging the spiritual lives of God's people and and disregarding the health spiritually among God's people. And Nehemiah says, shut the gates. He puts guards out there, and he says, the merchants and sellers, they were hanging outside of Jerusalem, lodging out there, creating temptation. Come on, come outside, or we'll do a deal out here, or whatever. And he says, they tried this once or twice. Look at verse 21. But then I warned them and said to them, 
these merchants and sellers, why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. And he was not talking about laying hands on for prayer. He was talking about laying hands on their shirt collar and yanking them out of town and taking them as far away as they need to go to give them a little help to put some separation between them and God's people. And he says, from that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. Nehemiah took a strong stand like a protective father, like a, you know, a, a, a protective shepherd over the sheep. And he said, get out of here or, 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 or you're going to get a little help with your dismissal with your removal. And he says, I, I threatened, I'm going to put my hands on you. <laughs> Again, just Nehemiah, it was his personality. He was a gritty guy, a strong spiritual leader. And when it came to what was in the best interest of pleasing God and doing what was best to take care of God's people, uh, he was not someone to be trifled with. He became quite fierce in his protection. Again, that's love because love protects. You know, and any good father would do something like that for his children, you know, any, any good father, maybe, a, you know, some young man is uh, hanging around outside your house that's unhealthy for your daughter. You don't want him out there. That's the kind of thing. Look, you after once or twice, they try. Look, if you don't leave, it's not going to be good for you. And, and, and this is kind of the idea here. And I think as a spiritual leader, sometimes we have to protect in ways that are sometimes pretty firm and pretty stern. And Nehemiah reminds me in many ways, even of just that loving but yet, again, righteous indignation of Jesus. Remember when Jesus went into the temple and he saw them selling and trying to do business in his father's house, which was supposed to be a house of prayer and worship and focus on God, and they were just using it to manipulate people financially and to take advantage of them, the money changers and uh, those selling animals. And, and, and it was a defilement of God's house and a distraction to God's people. Remember what Jesus did? Like Nehemiah going into Tobiah's room with his household goods, he went in and he cleansed the temple with a whip. And Jesus went in, one man, one man, Jesus went in with sternness and anger and a passion to please the Father in heaven and to protect God's people and their spiritual welfare. And he went in and he, with a whip, flipped over those tables and chased people out of that temple and shut down what they were doing and its hindrance. And again, uh, there's something about that I've done in a right spirit. Out of love, being led by the Lord, Nehemiah here, great character, it's the unique personality. He just was a strong leader in this way, and the Holy Spirit used him for such a time of this because it was necessary to clear this junk out of the temple and away from God's people. And he says, verse 22, I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go and guard the gates and sanctify the Sabbath day. He says to the Levites, look, this, you should be doing this. You're those who are supposed to be the workers in God's house. I shouldn't have to do this. This is your responsibility to go guard those gates. Again, he prays, remember me, O oh my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. <laughs> Lord, I just took a pretty strong stand. I don't know if there's going to be uh, a effort to take revenge upon me. I just threatened a whole bunch of people. So he says, God, I did this for you. Uh, protect me, Lord, from, from getting jumped as I, as I walk out of the city next time. Protect me according to your greatness, he says, God. Spare me. 
In those days, I also saw the Jews, he says, verse 23, who had married the women of Ashdod and Moab and uh, excuse me, of Ammon and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah. They didn't know the Hebrew or Aramaic language. The kids were confused because of the mixed marriages, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. So again, another place they had violated God's word and they had compromised on their commitment. They said, we're not going to let our children intermarry with pagan people who don't know our God and worship our God because that will draw them away spiritually and defile us as a people. They compromised again. There had been mixed marriages. And notice the, the sad outcome was not just the marriage, but also those mixed marriages resulted in confused children spiritually. The children suffered almost greatly in the process more than the actual parents did, the children of those mixed marriages, because they, they didn't know the language of the people of God, but they knew the language of the world. Because, see, whenever you have a mixed marriage like that and one parent loves the Lord and wants to worship and follow the Lord and, and point the child in the ways of the Lord, and then the other parent is, is worldly and ungodly and, and doesn't care about the things of God, it's very common that the child tends to gravitate towards the things of the flesh. Uh, and they know the ways of the world from the one parent's influence better than the ways of the Lord. It's, it's a tough thing when you have that kind of divide going on in the home. So this is why, again, when you're on the place where you can make that decision properly on the front side, you don't get into a mixed marriage spiritually because it's not just about you. You're going to have children potentially, and those children are going to grow up confused spiritually and struggle, and you can have a great impact upon them in an unhealthy way by marrying someone who does not worship and serve the same God as you. So look what Nehemiah does again, verse 25. So I contended with them and cursed them. And look what that says, verse 25, and struck some of them and pulled out their hair. <laughs> I mean, this, this guy believed in hands-on ministry. He says, I got so frustrated with some of them. And again, certainly I'm not endorsing. This is the way to serve the Lord. He says, literally, I contended with them. I cursed them. And then I started striking and yanking some of their beards right out of their faces. What is the matter with you? They're <laughs> just yanking the, their hair to get their attention because of how off track they had gotten. Again, he's just kind of strongly trying to wake them up. And, you know, the Bible says, Proverbs, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Uh, and sometimes, you know what, uh, whatever it takes maybe to kind of sting or hurt somebody a little bit to wake them up once in a while, you know, just like a, a kind of a, you know, a, a good old fashioned back in the day, you know, like a good old fashioned slap in the face or something to get somebody to wake up and realize what they're doing is really harmful and really wrong because they're kind of just not paying attention. It's kind of the idea here. He just says, I started smacking them and cursing them and pulling out their hair. And made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, he says, king of Israel, sin by these very things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him who was beloved of his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, verse 26, pagan women caused even him to sin. Should we then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? So you see the analogy that Nehemiah uses? Again, he has a scriptural basis for why this was so destructive to marry pagan women for their sons, who are supposed to be strong men of God and spiritual leaders, to, to get engaged in relationships and marriages with 
pagan women who didn't know their God and didn't worship their God like them. He says, look, Solomon, one of the greatest kings in Israel, had such opportunity, such gifting, such wisdom. And he says he was beloved of his God. And what ruined Solomon? Unhealthy relationships with women. That's what took down great King Solomon, this man of great wisdom who had great opportunity from God. It tells us in 1 Kings chapter 11 that pagan or ungodly women caused his heart to be turned away from the Lord. And that's what led to the demise and the downfall of Solomon. And look, I can't emphasize enough, again, if you are still single, someone who does not know the Lord or does not have the same love and commitment to the Lord as you do, if you get into a romantic relationship with them and God forbid you push past the boundaries and marry them, you are setting yourself up for a tremendous downfall spiritually. The influence of marriage is so strong. And again, as I said in a prior study, if you still have children who are not yet married, daughters, sons, do not, do not passively and reluctantly just take your hands off and not do something to try in some degree be involved to allow them to understand the danger of unequally yoked relationships spiritually. This is not a game. This is super critical in regards to its impact upon our lives. If you have sons and daughters that are not yet married, take heed to these things very, very seriously. Protect them. Don't stand passively by while they head down a road romantically with someone who is not right for them spiritually lest we see them become the next Solomon, the next spiritual casualty. I've seen it too many times. It's heartbreaking and completely unnecessary if we can get beyond emotions and think about faith and obedience instead and trust God's way is always best. So Nehemiah strongly, I mean, literally smacking people. This is so important to him in this situation. Let's finish up our chapter. And one of the sons, it says, of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law of Sanballat, the Hornite. Therefore, I drove him far from me. So again, we see what it caused. How did, how did you know, Sanballat and Tobiah and these guys end up having infiltration? It says it right there, because one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, it says he was the son-in-law of Sanballat. Remember Sanballat, Tobiah, these guys that were buddies. and, and There it is. It, it was a marriage that was unhealthy that ended up having much further influence and even caused problems all the way into the house of God and into ministry. Again, Nehemiah prays, remember them, O oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. He says, God, re remember what they're doing. In other words, pay attention, God, please intervene. Thus I cleansed them, he says, verse 30, of everything pagan. I also assigned duties to the priests and the Levites, each to a service, and to bringing the wood offering and the first fruits at the appointed times. And again, he concludes with prayer, this wonderful man of prayer. Again, praying through all this drama, multiple times in this chapter, drama, drama, strong stands rebuking sin, I mean, challenging people, contending with wrongdoing, trying to put things back on track that have gotten off track as a spiritual leader. And this was part of his role as, as, as a shepherd. It's what a shepherd does. 
It's what a leader does in any area, and certainly spiritually it's necessary at times. And, and he says here, I, I, I did what was necessary to cleanse them of everything pagan or ungodly, anything that was unhealthy spiritually. He did everything he could, he says, to drive out and to cleanse that from God's people's lives. And that's done as an act of love. Like a surgeon who says, it may hurt for me to cut the cancer out of your body, but because I love you, I'm willing to perform the surgical procedure. It may cause you some temporary hurt or discomfort, and you may not enjoy the process, but ultimately you will benefit from what I do by trying to purge out of your life what's not good. And Nehemiah here, doing this trying to reinstitute what's right and praying and seeking God through the whole process. You know, sometimes this is a part of what needs to happen in our lives spiritually, what needs to happen among the church. Don't look at this as always a negative thing. It should be done prayerfully and carefully, but out of love and passion for what pleases the Lord and ultimately what's best for God's people. So, congratulations. We've conquered another book studying through it in the Bible together, and we come to the end of the book of Nehemiah.